welcome to The Feminist Shift. Welcome to The Feminist Shift podcast, the podcast that takes a deep dive into issues affecting Waterloo Region and beyond from an intersectional feminist lens. So we're excited to be back in part two of our Network of Neighbors Feminist Shift podcast episode. Uh, You probably know my voice still from the last part one, or if you're finding us here in part two, my name is Jennifer Gordon. I am the Director of Advocacy with the Feminist Shift, and I am one of the voices on the Feminist Shift podcast. I have here today with me Rachel Walzer, who is an advocacy assistant with Feminist Shift. And uh, Rachel's been spending the last seven or eight months uh, co-facilitating the Network of Neighbors workshop with me. Uh, Rachel, say hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I feel like this seven months has just really flown by. It has, right? Uh, so the network of neighbors. So what we're aiming to do is train between 100 and 150 neighbors in Waterloo Region uh, to act as supports for those who might be experiencing violence in the home. This is a community-wide training that's designed to push back against the shadow pandemic. So that's the name that the UN gave uh, to describe the increase in gender-based violence that's happened during COVID-19. So we are funded by the Canadian Women's Foundation Safe and Stronger Grants. So we've done workshops over the last seven or eight months. We've hit our 150 neighbor uh, target. Now we're bringing our uh, workshop into a podcast episode format uh, for folks to be able to experience in a different way. Today is part two. Uh, There is a part one episode that we uh, published previously. If you are here but haven't uh, listened to part one, totally suggest you go there first. However, part two, uh, Rachel, what are we going over in this episode? Yeah, in part two, we're going to talk about pointed interventions like bystander training, fleeing the violence, uh, how to have a prevention talk and call law enforcement. And we're also going to talk a little bit about post-intervention follow-up. So looking at the aftermath of the intervention, what to do next, how to regroup, and how to move forward regardless of the outcome of that intervention. Okay, and particularly if the outcome wasn't what you expected, right? Tying down. Yeah, I mean, that's the unfortunate reality. Statistically, it takes an average of eight times to leave. So at least seven times, you know, you might be looking at how do we do this again? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to dive us right into an overview of some of the interventions we're going to go over. So we're going to look at bystander training. This is used to kind of interrupt tense moments, particularly in public settings. We're going to talk about fleeing violence. So Rachel's going to go over a little bit of safety planning for those that are working towards or in the process of fleeing or leaving that relationship. We're going to talk about prevention. So how do you have a conversation with someone whose behaviors are escalating, uh, but haven't hit uh, an abusive point? And I'm talking about calling law enforcement. So the idea of understanding what imminent risk is and some of the safety realities around police involvement. What I want to preface is, is that we are just going over some of the finite details about a very specific method of bystander training that both Rachel and I adore, which is the Hollerback 5Ds approach. So we're going to graze the field, if you will, um, talking a little bit about what those 5Ds are and how you can use them. However, I highly, highly, highly recommend uh, that if you're interested or intrigued by these 5Ds, that you go to iHollerback.org, sign up for one of their many facilitated online uh, bystander training sessions because they're going to go into more details they're going to give you some scenarios and other things that you can work with and it's just going to add more tools to your toolkit uh, for this kind of support in the community so that's iHollerback.org we will include that link in the podcast description for you 
So pulling apart these five Ds, the first D is distract. So the goal of distract is to indirectly insert yourself in the situation to shift the scenario, uh, causing some sort of distraction. You can do this physically or verbally. So physically might be walking in between two people uh, who are fighting or are escalating and picking something up instead of going around them. If you're looking at verbal, it's largely saying something that's mildly interesting, a little bit weird and might catch their attention. Like, oh my God, what is that? duck doing you can't help but want to turn around and understand what the duck is doing because what could the duck be doing right it's an immediate distraction some of the acting cues that come into play here when you're thinking about distracting so you want to be really oblivious you want to show no self-awareness uh, so any of the social cues that normally guide our behavior just abandon them you know make it a little bit awkward uh, make it a little bit weird uh, you want to stay subtle you don't want to take on the abusive person's actions directly and you want to get creative the weirder or more creative you are with this the better uh, off uh, you can be so like for example in our workshop there's this photo of a, uh, a man in a santa suit sitting in between two people that uh, were having a heated conversation or just everybody kind of looks a little bit dissatisfied santa shows up in the middle of summer and sits down in between you and and the person that you're having the argument with or uh, the situation with you can't help but be like what is this guy doing right so that's just an extreme example but you want to get creative and really abandon those social cues the second d delegate so the goal with this is to talk to someone in charge and have them uh, intervene. So if you're on a bus, a bus driver, maybe a manager at a store, a host of a party, somebody who works in a, a relevant field, law enforcement, anybody who in the scenario or in, or in the setting holds a bit of power. You want to go to that person, you want to inform that person in charge of what you saw and your concerns and ask that they intervene. The last part is really important because it gives a sense of ownership, right? So if anything came back on that person, they said, well, why did you get involved? It can easily be, well, one of one of the people on the bus, Rachel asked me to get involved because she was very worried about that person's well-being. That is enough in order to justify the action. Even though we shouldn't have to do that, it's still a thing. So you want to specifically ask that they intervene. Otherwise, they might just monitor the situation. They may not do any action at all, and it could escalate further. Uh, this is best used uh, if the delegate is in a position of perceived power and if it's in a public scenario or situation, kind of like a store, things like that, park, et cetera, uh, where there's lots of people around. Before you involve people like security, law enforcement, try and check in with the person experiencing uh, the abuse to see if that is something that they welcome. Not always an option, so use your discerning. Go back to that oppression privilege kind of wheel, or I guess stack and decide whether that's the best course of action. You can also couple this with distraction if you need some time to find someone to delegate to so you can tag in someone else to be the distractor. All right, the next D is document. Uh, this is pretty straightforward. This is the idea if you have your phone, that you're recording the scenario uh, in some sort of way so that your neighbor can use it. Uh, but also as a tactic to sort of hold the abuser more accountable. You can do this two ways. You can subtly record this using your phone or you can do it more directly by letting them know and announcing that you're filming, saying, I'm filming you. Know that if you take the second approach, that the negative or uh, the abusive behaviors might come your way. So just be sure of your safety. You want to check in with recording rules. You can't just walk into someone's private dwelling and start recording their situation, at least without permission. You want to be careful about your safety if you do announce that you are recording. If you don't have a device or keep your phone on you, another thing you can do is simply stop and stare, uh, making sure that you keep uh, a reasonable distance, but not too far away that it isn't noticed. Encourage other people to stop and stare as well. It can also be very effective. 
And then lastly, I want you to consider the ethics around this documenting. This isn't your story to tell. Posting it on social media doesn't make you a hero. Uh, This really belongs to the person that was experiencing the abuse. And so it's important to tie in with that person or catch up with them and see what they would like done with that recording. They might decide that they just want you to delete it because they're embarrassed of the scenario. They might have a lawyer or a family member. They might ask you to keep it or want to copy themselves. So you really need to respect that that story just because you recorded it doesn't belong to you. The next one, uh, the next D is delay. So this is very simple. You want to let the situation dissipate or kind of come to a natural end. And then you want to check in with your neighbor and make sure they're okay afterwards, the next day, et cetera, uh, when you get a chance. Uh, You can share with them any documentation you might have taken about the event. You can provide recommendations for support if they ask about it or talk about uh, if they want law enforcement involved in the future if this happens. Uh, This is an opportunity to show that you're willing to be part of their support network. And lastly, the direct approach. This is speaking directly to the abuser about their behavior in that moment. So you want to be firm, direct, non-confrontational, and call out their behaviors. If you do this, make sure you have an exit strategy, ensure you're safe, you're not backed up into a corner, other things. Keep it short and to the point. This is not meant to be an intervention that is the, you know, coming, coming to a realization moment. This is just meant to stop the abuse in the moment from escalating further, right? So try not to engage in a debate around the merits of, uh, of these behaviors or fight with the abuser. Instead, if that starts to happen, shift your focus over to your neighbor and make sure that they're okay. So those are the five Ds. So we're talking about distract, delegate, document, delay, and direct. Uh, We are merely messengers of this bystander approach. If you really enjoy it, we really recommend that you sign up for that Hollerback training. All right, so our uh, pointed intervention number two, uh, this is when things are coming to a peak, the idea of fleeing violence. Rachel, can you take us through a little bit about some of the realities around that? Yeah. I think it's really important to just convey that the time around a flea attempt is often the most dangerous for your neighbor. The reality is that fleeing from their abuser is going to be very difficult. And as they start to prepare to flee, it can lead to escalated violence because the abuser feels like they're losing power. We're thinking way back to the beginning of part one, where we talked about kind of the hooks of manipulation. That is something that the abuser uses to monitor the person they're abusing. So if they start to notice that they're losing power, it can lead to one of two things. It can lead to that honeymoon phase where the abuser tries to lure their partner back in. It can also lead to the acute and crisis phase. The other thing is that this is likely one of many attempts your neighbor is going to make to flee. I think the other really important piece here is the people that we are supporting live with what's called an intuitive sense of fear. It's a survival technique that's kept them alive during this entire process. They know when the abuse is getting worse. We also want to support our neighbor in planning for their accessibility needs. This is a big one for me because you have to think of all of the nuances that come with supporting someone with a disability, right? Even if we just look at transportation, for any public transportation in our community, for someone um, in a wheelchair, for example, you need to book that in. And perhaps that abusive partner has access to know when that person might be fleeing the violence, right? So what other options can you support around the planning? Is there a taxi, other things, right? Can the shelter support the person in their accommodations? Uh, We have, you know, old infrastructure in our 
community. So we want to make sure that that shelter is ready and able to support. But then we also need to know that sometimes people's assisted devices are another thing that's kept from them in a controlled sort of way in abusive relationships. So you get the hearing aids when I decide to get the hearing aids or, or access to walkers and other things. So there's a lot of planning, extra planning that can go around supporting someone with a disability um, to make sure that those accessibility needs are going to be met when they do flee that relationship. Absolutely. And I think that also ties into packing considerations, especially your example there about hearing aids. Does your neighbor have everything they need, right? Do they have the originals of their documentation stashed in that emergency pack suitcase along with medications, prescriptions, money? Do they have proof of relationship, right? And that can be that can be a small thing from a bill with both of both their and their abuser's name on it, but sometimes that stuff's out of out of reach. So that can also look like photos of wedding anniversaries. Anything like that can work to help establish proof of a relationship should she flee the situation. Another thing to consider are valuables. Does she know what her valuables are? Is she able to pack them? Children's things, pets things. I think when we were in one of the workshops, Jen, somebody suggested that we get replica of children's stuffies to make sure that the child doesn't feel like they're doing without because mom's fleeing the situation. Another one about the pets, um, our local humane society, the KW Humane Society, offers a really cool foster program, helps to keep the pets in loving homes while mom gets back on her feet. So that's one less stress for her in the moment, and she'll be reunited with her loved little buddy afterwards. And I think the last thing here is addresses and phone numbers. So when we're thinking about all of the things we need, we might be more likely to write down the doctor's phone number than mom's phone number, but I can Google the doctor's phone number. I can't necessarily Google the phone number of my Aunt Linda or the address to my cousin's house. What we want to do as allies is really be thinking about the things that's going to support her in making this big, this big jump out of this situation. And one of them is shelter support. So in Waterloo Region, every door to a shelter is the right door. So whether you're accessing the YW Emergency Shelter and Selma House, Haven House, or Cambridge Shelter, walking in and telling the staff there that this person is fleeing violence is going to start that person on the road to where they need to be. One of the things we have in shelter is an agreement with Women's Crisis Services that very clearly outlines who needs to take what steps. So if somebody shows up at the YW Emergency Shelter and says they're looking to flee violence, they're going to be treated the exact same way with the same trauma-informed care that they would be treated at Women's Crisis Services while we try to find a safe place for this person. All right. The third intervention we're going to go over is a prevention talk. In this, I'm going to break down toxic masculinity, not as an excuse for the behavior, but as a contributing factor to behaviors escalating to abuse or violence, and then how to have a prevention conversation. Rachel, just like you've been saying ongoing, that there isn't really a prescription. The same applies here, but there's some things that you can look out for when you're trying to evaluate whether someone's behavior might turn abusive. So you're going to look for someone who's becoming much less patient. They're going to become more forward with their criticism of their partner. So it's become normalizing. So they might be louder about it, more confident in saying it, saying it around a wider variety of people or a bigger audience and feeding off the reactions, uh, both positive and negative of that criticism. They're avoiding their emotions. Perhaps something life-changing happened and now they're kind of not processing or they're just avoiding their feelings. So they're bottling up. 
And then you might see an increase in unhealthy coping behaviors, things like alcohol um, and drug use uh, might start to appear. Uh, if you have a relationship with someone who appears to be under more stress, is coping much less well than before, is experiencing more frustrations or is really sharing frustrations with everything or falling into patterns of toxic masculinity, this might be a good opportunity for you to check in on them and see where they're at. So toxic masculinity is a celebrated cultural norm and expectation associated with a particularly white and Western idea of what makes you a real man. So consider the action star coming out who's avenging his family's death, but he hasn't cried once because he's a man and he's saving a puppy, but he doesn't actually care about the puppy. And he's punching another guy in the throat because he's just in the way and there's an explosion going on in the background. And he's, he's on a vigil anti uh, um, directive and he's, uh, he's going to get revenge, but he's not going to, and that's going to make everything okay and then he's going to be completely unaffected and scrappy about it and he's just a tough guy we know these action stars they perpetuate this toxic masculinity idea he's tough unemotional scrappy unaffected this kind of expectation on men ties to things like misogyny a hate of women and girls and homophobia a hate of gay people things that challenge this sort of toxic masculinity or this idea of what a man should be it prevents men from being authentic with their emotions they're taught to repress not express and it gets the topic or the title of toxic because all of this behavior and and trying to work towards this accepted real unrealistic standard of a real man leads back and encourages violence every single time so my argument in talking about toxic masculinity is I think that from the, from the spirit of prevention, there's an opportunity to help the men in our life move beyond this limiting idea of who they should be. Even if it is a conversation where you emote more emotions, it's okay to kind of feel a little bit angry about this, sad about this, et cetera, uh, helping people through those big life moments where things can really bottle up. If you're having a talk with somebody, so I tried to pull some things together of what you can consider if you're going to move forward and have the talk. Um, and by the talk, I should probably qualify that. Um, in this case, the talk is uh, very much uh, just having a talk about someone's behaviors that might be escalating um, with that. So that's the talk in this scenario. In having the talk, there are seven things that I sort of pulled out to consider. Uh, the first one is you want to pick a safe place, both for your well-being and for the person you're talking to, to open up. So you want to make sure that, for example, you're not doing it in front of a bunch of family or friends, uh, that there's an opportunity for you to feel safe, uh, but that that person doesn't feel inhibited to open up and the conversation shuts down because of the location you're in. You don't want to argue with the abuser about their toxic actions. That's not what this is about. Um, this is about avoiding judgment, but also not validating their attempts to blame others for their actions. What I mean by this is that you don't want to judge them for this sort of escalating. You want to have compassion and understanding. Again, this is a prevention situation. As so before an abusive action has happened, but you also don't want to allow them just to blame their partner, blame their boss, blame their friends, blame whoever, family members for their actions, because that doesn't give accountability. You want to be honest about your concerns, but on the same side, be willing to support them on a different path. So I'm honestly concerned that you're uh, becoming much more frustrated and it's showing in your relationship. However, if you want to work past that, I'm more than happy to be here with you every step of the way. That's going to be an awkward moment, particularly for men who have subscribed to this toxic masculinity kind of persona uh, or have been influenced by it. However, it's an important distinction to make that you're there to support them in a different way. 
You want to share what you're seeing. Uh, so often when we end up in these spirals of negative behaviors, we don't always understand how we got there or the triggers that got us, that got us sort of down our rabbit hole, so to speak. So you want to be able to tie negative changes in their behaviors to certain events. So I noticed when dad died, you started, um, sharing more frustration um, with everything. Or I noticed when uh, your friend moved away that uh, you became more impatient um, with everyone else around you. I noticed when you took on this new job uh, that you had this extreme added stress and you didn't have as much patience uh, anymore. Or I noticed that when you have a bad day at work, it shows up in your relationship when you're talking about uh, your partner and criticizing them. You want to acknowledge their stress and other life realities that might be causing their behaviors and actions. We have to remember that toxic masculinity does not allow men to acknowledge these different realities um, and, and process them. The idea is to be tough and work past them and be unaffected. Uh, so by acknowledging that you see the stress and you understand their life realities allows them to open up and feel a bit more human um, about their experiences. And then you want to check in with yourself throughout with reflexivity questions. And you want to do that because this may not go as smooth and romantic as this conversation here, right? Uh, Rachel, I don't know about you, but I've had this conversation before that was a turning point for somebody and was exactly what we both needed to kind of move forward. And I've had it where the person just got rid of me in their life. Um, you never really know exactly which way someone's going to take it, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's natural to be defensive when someone's coming to you with this information, but really having a good support can make a difference. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to move into appointed intervention number four, calling law enforcement. This is about imminent harm. And how I define imminent harm is often, it's a situation where without immediate intervention, something life-changing and negative is going to occur. And so when we're talking about imminent harm, we're thinking about the unfortunate reality of domestic homicide. We're thinking about that acute and crisis phase where it's a really explosive dynamic. And those are often, I think, the situations that when people are intervening or perceive themselves to be intervening in situations of domestic violence, this is the, the priority in their concern is, is calling law enforcement to try and keep everybody safe. But the reality is that sometimes calling the police is an escalation factor for violence. Sometimes police make assumptions or they don't have the training to recognize abuse. I know one situation, um, a person I was supporting talked about how during the entire conversation with the police, they allowed her partner to smoke. And so he would grind his cigarettes into the ashtray and how that was a threat to her. The police didn't know that. And, and there's other factors like cultural factors that can make calling the police unsafe for your neighbor or even a threat to their safety. So sometimes calling the police will be the best option for your safety. It will be the only option to stop imminent harm or prevent domestic homicide, which is death by abuser. But there's a lot to take into consideration. So best practices include trying to have a conversation with your neighbor ahead of having to call the police. One of the reasons we wanna do that is to check in with our neighbor to see how they feel about law enforcement. Some people would rather you call a family friend or a brother or a sister, and we want to take that into consideration. So one of the other things when you're doing the safety planning is really having that conversation about under which circumstances should you be calling police um, and, and be prepared that if you do call police, to not do it anonymously. I think it's very natural, Jen, for people to want to kind of 
call and hide behind the curtain and not have people know that they called. Um, Absolutely. I would say at least the first half a dozen times I did this, I was definitely peeking out from behind the curtain. Even one time I was caught where the police like shot a light on me because I was watching what was happening. Right. So it is, it, it feels, it feels like you're doing something, but you're not getting so involved that yeah. you're accountable to, to, to something. Right. Yeah. Um, and the reality is that if you do that, the police can't follow up with you. And there's been so many circumstances where police have come out and said, you know, I really don't have enough information or this or that because they are held to a very like clear rule book. But as a neighbor, that's an ally and a support one of the things you can do is, is tell the police who you are so they can come over and you can, you know, we're working on the safety plan. This is kind of what we've got going on. This is what's been happening. It gives the police more information because they genuinely also want to be a help. It's just a matter of learning how to, how to support this person. And if they've never met them before, there might be things they don't know that they need to know. The other thing is as an ally, it can fall to you to get the occurrence number and the badge numbers from the police. This is the way police catalog their information. It's really important because that way we can avoid having to support her while she calls the police later down the line to find out about this incident that happened on this day at maybe around seven o'clock, but I'm not sure. That is just a really re-traumatizing experience. So if we can get those numbers, it can make it a lot easier for her. And then the last piece here is we want to check in with our neighbor after the experience, see if there's something we could do differently to support them in the future. That's a big one too, because the experience can be really different um, depending on even just oppression and privilege and past experiences, right? So being able to check in uh, with your neighbor, understanding the experience, planning better for next time if there is a next time, or also starting to consider who else um, might be a good person to engage around support for them, a family member, a friend, a community leader, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we are talking about these interventions, you know, trying to remember that this, this most recent intervention is likely not going to be the last intervention, uh, changes the way we approach them. We start thinking about how can we set ourselves up for more success in the future, even if it is the last time, like amazing. But no matter what in our role as allies, there is some reflexivity pieces that we need to do to be able to be accountable to ourselves and most importantly to our neighbor. Let's talk a little bit about that post-intervention piece. So after we've done an intervention with somebody, what can that look like? Particularly, I want to focus in on if an intervention didn't uh, necessarily end in, in a complete solution. Does that make sense? Yeah. A lot of people go on to continue to live with violence or in, in ways they're going on to continue to live with, live with violence in the perspective of their neighbor. So maybe for them, it feels like everything's changed. But for me as the neighbor, I still see things that are concerning, right? And so it's really on me to ask myself, did my intervention with this, this individual, did it not work at all? Or did it just not work the way I wanted it to? And I'm going to give you the key to this piece here is this is all about me. And the reality is that I need to think about her. We need to go back and think about the reminder um, that we're going to think about that power and control wheel, right? The different tactics of abuse. We're going to think about the oppressions and privileges that my neighbor experiences that I experience differently. 
And we're going to think also back to that cycle of abuse, that tension building phase into the acute and crisis phase, into the honeymoon phase. These are all factors in her day-to-day -day life that we need to stay focused on. So we're going to, as somebody who's trying to intervene, I'm going to ask myself, how do I manage my disappointment and not put that on the other person? What was the roadmap of how I felt this intervention should have gone down based on my own opinions and privilege? How am I going to manage the ugly feelings that my neighbor failed or that I made the wrong decision in helping? How do I process my anger in ways that don't increase isolation or risk of harm to my neighbor? And as a known accomplice, how am I going to interact with my neighbor and or their abuser in the future in a way that doesn't bring more violence? But most importantly, how am I going to continue to support my neighbor without judgment? So in your experience, how have you continued to support your neighbor without judgment? With a lot of learning. It is, <laughs> I think it took, it, it took a really honest conversation uh, with someone for me to realize that I had been taking what I like to call the frustration response, right? Mm -hmm. I'd been putting my neighbor, uh, or in this case, my friend in a situation where they were between me and their abuser, and there was no safe way for them to choose me in that situation. Mm -hmm. I was making it more unsafe by making statements like, hey, listen, I don't want him around here. He's not welcome in my home, you know? creating situations where people are forced to choose just makes it harder for them. And they're already going through so much. So when, when I'm thinking about ways I would discourage other people from responding, I wouldn't, I don't think it's okay to make personal attacks on somebody's character just because they're living with domestic violence. It's not appropriate to criticize their abusive partner's character, again, puts them in the middle. And definitely we never want to use the kids well-being as emotional blackmail. That's, that's not fair. The reality is that every decision she's making up until this point has been to try and keep her and her, the people she loves safe. And mm. I think that one of the things I really needed to learn was to respect that. Yeah. I've, I have responded in a frustration response before. Um, I mean, I think it's hard because you come in not hard. It's easy because you become invested. But these are just like in part one, when you talked about how to respond to disclosures or not respond, it's the same sort of rhetoric here by responding in a frustration response. So uh, making ultimatums, uh, emotional blackmailing, uh, you know, uh, criticizing the abusive partner's character in front of them, taking hard stances, all of those things are just going to alienate that relationship. But if you're able to manage that, and you do come through the intervention um, still as a strong unit, there's also the chance that you're going to get identified as somebody who's supporting by that abusive partner and sort of a threat to, uh, to their abusive ecosystem they've kind of created. Yeah. And I think like getting ice out could be such a difficult situation to navigate. If you are identified, the abuser is going to label you they're going to try to push you away, ostracize you, tell their partner that they can't see you around anymore. And so there's a couple of things uh, that you can do to combat that. So one of them, and I think this is probably the easiest thing for me to think of off the top of my head, is to just tag in a lesser known member of my social circle. So maybe my other neighbor has an idea what's going on, but just hasn't been as involved as I am. So the abuser hasn't figured out that that person is trying to act as a safe person. Um, that person can jump right in, make 
make it a point to try and engage my neighbor to decrease the isolation that they're going to experience now that I've been pushed out of the situation, right? I can try to engage the abuser on completely unrelated topics. So that tree at the end of the corner is going to cause an accident if it doesn't get trimmed. Or don't you really wish that they would fix this pothole over here or they had that no parking sign up? Yeah, I think my favorite example of that is when you think about folks living in apartment buildings, oh when you gosh. talk about that smell in the, the smell in the hallway that hit home oh. for me. I was like, that could be a conversation any day of the week ongoing, right? Or or like something relate. broken in a shared space. Like Yeah. 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 One of the things we want to do is just stop talking about the abuse with this abuser, right? We want to take that that little bit of a step back especially if we notice that the honeymoon phase has moved in and that our neighbor is being given gifts and promises. And, you know, we want to just step back. Nothing we can do can change that situation for her in that moment. And I think, well, it's peace, right? When you, when you see a sense of peace, you know, that imminent, it's not in that tension building or, or uh, uh, imminent risk kind of category. So it's an opportunity to sort of put the brakes on a little bit, flow in with the relationship and show up again as tension starts to build because it will go back there. Um, yeah, in that absolutely. Nature. Yeah. And so I think the, the last piece there is just, just really find a way to let our neighbor know we're still there for them. And so if that means showing up at the mailbox on Tuesdays at four or dropping off that casserole in the most obnoxious I believe, way uh, I believe uh, mailboxes were Wednesday at four and castles oh. were on Tuesdays but you know oh, that's, a, that's a prelude into part one for anyone who <laughs> decided not to take our advice and listen to part one first now they're intrigued they're like what was that about all in part one <laughs> we've got a weekday schedule there <laughs> okay yeah. so you know you're bringing in someone else that you know you're finding a safe way to kind of still be there in the background I mean, what does this all wrap up to? I think the the point of of this, and speaking from my heart, because it does seem to come up a lot, is that domestic violence is a community problem. It's not an individual's problem. It's just shrouded in isolation that shifts the blame onto the people who experience it. We are never going to be able to change it if we keep looking at it as an individual problem. So the idea of a network of neighbors, a network of support, means that you have that lesser known member of your social circle. It means that everybody is moving through this community together. They are being seen. Their needs are being thought of by their neighbors. The idea is that domestic violence, like even just talking about it, Jen, comes with such a heavy weight. Um, But it shouldn't. It's It's not our weight to bear. The goal is for network of neighbors to decrease that weight, we want to remind people who are living with abuse that they're not alone. And we want to connect them to a greater network of support. A network of neighbors. (laughs) Uh, Well, that's perfect way to end off part two um, of our podcast here. Between part one and part two, you've gotten a taste for what our network of neighbors training is. Uh, If you'd like to learn more, uh, you can learn more on our website. So looking at feministshift.ca slash network dash of dash neighbors. On there, you will see some other materials we use for our uh, workshop, including a PowerPoint presentation. And we will have a video recording up of the presentation, as well as one with closed captioning and ASL. 
we thank everybody for joining in and for all of those neighbors that have stepped forward to take a stand against domestic violence and to uh, be part of this network that we're building. Keep tuned. We'll have lots more planned for this initiative in the future. Rachel, thanks for doing this uh, uh, podcast training with me. Yeah, it was great. Thank you for joining us on the Feminist Shift podcast. You can follow our advocacy work by heading over to thefeministshift.ca or on social media under the handle Feminist Shift. Feminist Shift is a capacity building initiative between YW Kitchener-Waterloo and YWCA Cambridge funded by Women and Gender Equality Canada. This episode was brought to you by the Canadian Women's Foundation Safe and Stronger Grants as part of our Network of Neighbors initiative.